All right, we're back in Acts one more time. We're going to be in Acts most of the year, so you'll get used to hearing that. We're in Acts chapter 12, and so let me ask you to go to that location, and we'll take a look at this um, very exciting passage of Scripture. I love this passage of Scripture. I love the story. I love some of the irony in this particular story. While you're going to Acts chapter 12, let me just take a moment to thank you for the gifts, to thank you for the recognition Somebody mentioned earlier about how long it had been, and it's, it definitely falls into one of those categories. It depends on the day. Some days it seems like it's been a lifetime, and others days it feels like it's just passed. But the one thing that has been consistent through all of it in our congregation is we have seen how God moves and life is transformed, and we're, we're grateful for that. Um, leadership plays a key role in that. I understand that. And anybody who studies church um, strategy and church, especially revitalization of existing and long-tenure churches, understands leadership is key. Leadership is vital. And we're very blessed. We have, we have great leadership in our church. We have great leadership out of our congregation. We have great leadership on our staff team. Uh, and God has blessed that and used that, and we've seen just lots of exciting things take place. And that's who it is today. The, the friendliness, the sense of warmth, the, the sense of, of mission, what we're about, the opportunity to share our faith with one another, the opportunity to care for one another as our deacons are doing today with widows and widowers and to demonstrate that care, that compassion and that love that's a part of who we are as a congregation, all the while knowing and understanding and recognizing it gives us the opportunity as people who have experienced life change to share that life change with people that we come in contact with. And it's not always easy. Um, Pastor Josh mentioned the statistics, and it does change every year. And for a long time, the statistics on pastoral tenure uh, went up, um, primarily because of the transition from parsonages, church-owned houses, to minister-owned houses, uh, it became more difficult for a minister to move because he owned his own house, is what they credit that to. But in the last decade, a little over a decade, really most of the 2000s, um, it has gone back down again. And part of it is, as Pastor Josh mentioned and reflected, it is the resistance and the difficulty of ministering in this period of time. And that's, but that's okay. Those who are familiar with Scripture know the story of Esther, an amazing story in our Old Testament where all of the people of God are threatened. Their lives are literally threatened. They're, they are literally facing the possible genocide of all Jews and all believers in Jehovah. Um, and God calls one lady to come and step in. The classic verse in the book of Esther that many are familiar with says, as Mordecai, her uncle, looks at her and says, for all we know, in this moment, for such a time as this, you have been called for the kingdom. And that's critical. And our staff understands that. We talk about that. We pray for it almost every single Monday. That sense of call that motivates and drives us and says, this is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to expend our lives doing. Often you'll hear me quote from Acts chapter 20, verse 24, where Paul said of his own life and his own call, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. 
So any moment like this, it's definitely about Carrie and I, and I definitely could not accomplish this without her um, in any way, in any stretch of imagination. She is my top advisor, my top consultant, um, and she doesn't get paid near as much as some of the other consultants we, we hire at times to help us out. Um, but she's the one I always count on, and she consults on the consultants as well, which is always helpful. But she would agree with me, and she would express it with me. We're part of a team. And that's what makes the difference here, is we're in this together. And we're going to see the church in Acts chapter 12 understand a crisis in leadership, not because the leader has done anything, but because the climate has changed, the culture has changed in Acts chapter 12, and it is now a predominantly anti-Christian, in particular, specifically, culture. The Jews that have not accepted Jesus as Messiah have now turned against the Christian movement. They've had evidence and they have acquired the ability to persecute and they are doing so and the Christian church is suffering as a result of it. Political leadership has moved into place. And now a new Herod sits on the throne and is over and wants to please the antagonistic Jews and wants to please those who are opposed to Christianity and has already done so that we'll see in the very first few verses, um, has already violently attacked the church, has already executed and martyred James, the brother of John, and now has arrested Peter. And this puts the church in one of its finest and most amazing moments. Because we'll see how we handle crisis. We'll see when everything breaks down, just as if we were on a journey, just as if we were on a trip in this moment, everything goes wrong. Vehicle breaks down, tires go flat. Everything seems wrong. Everything seems difficult. Everything seems to be a challenge. And we see the church rise to that challenge in this amazing miracle. Let's look at Acts chapter 12. Let me take just a moment. Um, this is always a little bit long and lengthy so that you catch the full sense of this story and of this moment. Let me read it to us. I'll be starting in verse 1, so if you want to read along with me. Sometimes our translations are different. I'm teaching out of the Christian Standard Bible. You can change that on your Bible app. You can't change it physically. You can try to read one of the Bibles in front uh, in the pew in front of you. Um, but I'll just be honest, I also had a birthday this month as well, birthday anniversary, and I can't read the typeset in the ones in front of you. But feel free to pick one up, take a look at it. Always, we've got Bibles down front, we've got Bibles in the guest center, and we want you to have a scripture. And so let's look at this passage together, and let's just listen for a moment to the story. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 is where I'm going to start. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some of those who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After their arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains while sleeping, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in the front door guarded the prison, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. 
and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Get up, quick. And the chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know what the, what, <clears throat> he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first, second guards, they came to the, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them, to them, by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they said to her. But she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it is his angel. Peter, however, kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand, to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. The rest of the chapter will give you an account of Herod's death. Herod has a long family history of this. His grandfather is the one who persecuted all the babies in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. His uncle, if I remember correctly, was the one who executed John the Baptist because John the Baptist called it because he was having an affair with his sister-in-law. And now Herod has found that it's politically expedient for him to imprison the new Christian leadership and even execute the new Christian leadership. And in so doing, there is an antagonistic response against the church. This is not a favorable atmosphere. This is not a favorable moment in time. And I think one of the great things about Scripture is that it is always honest and it is always clear and it doesn't, it doesn't sugarcoat anything for us. It doesn't just buffer everything for it. Sometimes life is really hard. Sometimes the response against our faith is antagonistic. And it can happen in any number of venues. It can happen in this case with a government that has gone rogue and doesn't respect the people. It can happen with the shift of culture and the shift of public opinion. It can happen in an office it can happen in policies that corporations set into place. It can happen with a boss or a coworker that is antagonistic. It can happen within your family. Many members of our church struggle because one spouse believes in Christ and the other spouse doesn't. And at best, they make life miserable for the believer because they don't understand and they don't get it and they don't see what is causing this transformation. 
Oftentimes, parents believe and children don't. In many cases, children believe and parents don't. In any number of environments, in any number of ways, we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. And there is a beautiful image in this story in, and in its simplicity. I would love to give you like, hey, here's seven things to do when it gets really bad. But in this story, there is only one thing to do, and that is to pray. You begin praying. You might need to make changes, and you might need to, need to create a strategy out of your trouble, out of that antagonism, out of that difficulty. You might need to make a strategy to figure out exactly how to cope with and live through this difficult set of circumstances, but always the immediate response needs to be prayer. And one of the disciplines we encourage out of all of our congregation and we encourage out of ourselves is that our immediate reaction to any scenario is to pray. And just pause for a moment and think of something difficult. You might think of something that actually happened. It might have happened this morning on the way here. It could have happened this week. Maybe you had a car accident. Maybe you did have a flat tire. Maybe there was some kind of breakdown. Maybe there was some kind of trouble at home. Maybe there was trouble at school. Maybe there was trouble at work. What was your immediate reaction and response? We could be, just like Herod, antagonistic and look for ways to thrash and look for ways to, to, to strike back. Or we could be like the church that said, okay, we need to pray. And so they, they gathered in a home because they don't have buildings, facilities like we understand today, and they began to pray. Their immediate response was to pray. And if you do this over a period of time, it becomes a natural instinct. It becomes your first form of self-defense. It becomes your first form of reaction for protection or for shelter to simply begin praying. And sometimes if you do it long enough, you'll find yourself in many circumstances praying and you'll, and you'll realize, oh, probably this situation doesn't warrant prayer. Let me give you an example. We, we watch many of the baseball games as we start into baseball season. We watch many of those games live at the moment that they take place. We watch a lot of them recorded because we do it on the DVR and, and maybe we're not available that night or maybe it's a matinee game and we can't watch it that afternoon. So we watch it that night when we're home from work and when we're together. And I will find myself at times in a baseball game beginning to pray. I mean, I, I've, I've said it before, it's no real surprise, but as spring training is kicking into place and everything's happening, and, and as he just signed a new contract and is going to stay here in Houston, I just love Jose Altuve. I just want to take him up and kind of cuddle him. He just, I mean, he's just so cute and so small <laughs> to a big guy like me. I think the world of him. And I hate it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I just can't stand it when the opposing teams start booing. It's like there's a part of me that wants to yell at the screen. And there's a part of me that has yelled at the screen a couple of times. Like, y'all just get over it. We beat you soundly, and you just can't seem to cope with it. I mean, we'll just do it again. And it just seems like as if the Astros just keep beating all these teams over and over. I mean, what are the Dodgers going to learn? They lost the World Series because they're a bad team. I mean, when are they going to figure that out? 
That's not the best immediate response. But there's every once in a while, especially when he's in a slump and he's just having so much trouble batting, and, I'm, and I just start praying for him. I mean, just instinctively, without, without even th- thinking about it. I just say, okay, Lord, help him concentrate and, and I'll just help him, help him pay attention. And I'll realize I am praying for a baseball player to hit the ball. And I'm realizing that I'm praying for a baseball player to hit the ball, and the game was four hours ago. As if somehow God is going to change the DVR, and at some point, as a result of my prayer, he's going to hit the ball. And I feel kind of ridiculous, except that I'm telling you, if you build up a repeated pattern of prayer, it's going to be your first response in any situation. And this is one of those times you want to err on the side of preparation and discipline and not on the side of being unprepared. And so just like any other skill, just like any other discipline, whether it is academic or intellectual, whether it's physical or mental, the repetitive nature of that immediate response to pray will lead us to pray every single time, which leads us to just absolutely amazing, absolutely um, astounding and astonishing results. The church prayed, which is the most appropriate response. Not an antagonistic response, even if it's antagonistic towards me. That's not the best response. My getting angry rarely ever helps any situation resolve itself. But my humbling myself and stopping for a moment and recognizing that, hey, God is the one in control here. God has the ability to make a difference here. God has the ability to do things I can't do. In that moment, I relinquish my anxiety. I relinquish my frustrations. I relinquish my confusion. I relinquish these things to him and ask him, to take control. The situation's bad, and the Bible is honest about that. We're talking about multiple people that have already been executed and martyred by this point in time, and we're talking about Peter being arrested now for the third time, and we're talking about the church in danger, and in danger, the church prays. And then the response the response is just amazing. Even as I read, the, read the, this passage to you, I heard several laugh and kind of chuckle to themselves because it's an interesting way the story unfolds. The response is so astonishing that it catches everybody off guard. Peter's in prison. The image we have in these verses as he's sitting there. He has a regular rotation of four guards. So they put two on each side of him and he's chained to them. And they put two at the entrance to his cell into that prison. And they rotate those four four times throughout the day so that at all times part Peter is under four watchful Roman centurions and guards. He's escaped before miraculously, and they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. But it does happen again. In verse 7, an angel of the Lord appears. The light fills the cell, and he wakes him up. And I, I, I love that. I, I actually love the idea, the concept, that the angel literally steps over to Peter and literally shakes him and literally wakes him up and says to him, quick, Get up. 
Now, I could be hypercritical and say, well, why wasn't Peter anticipating God's deliverance? He's experienced it before. He should experience it. We don't know the exact time frame here. There's a period of time in which Peter was arrested, and there's a period of time in which he's been in prison. They're waiting for the conclusion of Passover to be able to do this and bring him out and publicly humiliate him and possibly, probably execute him. So there has been time that has elapsed. Is it that he's just not sure? Is it that he doubts? Or is it that he's just comfortable or confident? To me, the bottom line of all those questions that scholars ask about this doesn't really matter. Because God is going to work as a result of our prayers, whether we understand it or whether we anticipate it. And that's one of the reasons Jesus taught us to pray according to the will of God. And he taught us to pray, that we would pray, and that we would regularly pray. And many of us say it sometimes without even thinking, Lord, your will be done, because God has a plan, and God is going to accomplish that plan. And God is going to accomplish that plan in his way. I gave up a long time ago trying to tell God how to answer my prayers. Just trust him. And that's where I fall out. I tend to think in this moment, Peter is sound asleep because he knows two things. God is always faithful and the church is praying, which is a key lesson in and of itself. It's semi-even appropriate on an anniversary date like this. We need to pray for one another. Most of the time when we experience breakdowns, most of the time when something goes wrong, we're not actually the best person to pray for ourselves. We're upset. Our thought processes aren't necessarily correct. Our thought process may or may not be in line with the teaching of Scripture. We may not even be sure exactly how to pray, which even the Holy Spirit promises to pray for us when we don't know how to pray. The best thing for us is to have someone else praying. The catch is, that's relatively easy if you're facing a surgery. I appreciate everybody praying. The pastor, we talked, Josh talked about the children being released. The pastor has been released. I am thankful to be out of that cast and to be done and nothing else to show for it other than a pretty cool looking scar. And so you know, I appreciate the prayers. It's, it's easy sometimes to ask for prayers in those moments. But we need people in our lives that we trust with the most secret and the most desperate prayers. This is where I'm struggling in my personal life. This is where I'm struggling spiritually. This is where I'm struggling in a relationship. This is where I'm struggling at work. This is what I'm struggling with with a teacher or with a fellow student. We need somebody to pray for us. I believe Peter can be confident in this moment because the church is praying. Doesn't mean he doesn't need to pray, and it doesn't mean that he isn't praying, even though it doesn't tell us that he was praying. It just means that when these moments happen, we need to be together in this. Peter's in a bit of a daze. This is so astonishing, and the response is so significant. He doesn't even understand what's happening until way down in verse 10 when he gets outside and he gets through several different streets and he finally kind of comes to himself. And says, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. I mean, it took him a moment to even realize what was taking place. 
Now, I love this part. This is probably my favorite part. Even the first time I was a new Christian and I read this, I thought I had already experienced enough church prayer meetings to know, oh, this is actually pretty typical. In verse 12, he realizes all this, and he realizes the prayer has been answered. He realizes God has moved. God's grace is evident. God's mercy has worked in this situation. God's victory has come through again. And so his immediate response is to go where the people had assembled and where they were praying. This is not a multi-bullet point message today, but there are so many little things as you read this and as you think about this passage. When something's bad, turn to the church. And I recognize that's not necessarily the most popular thing. But Peter, once he realizes he's out, the first place he wants to go is church. Sometimes, I believe Satan deceives us and we think the last place we want to go is church. Things are going good with my kids. I don't feel comfortable at church. Things aren't going good at work. I don't feel comfortable at church. If you came with any illusion that this is a place of perfection, that is an incorrect illusion. It is a human place. So Peter gets to the door, he gets to the gate, and he starts knocking on the gate. Rhoda, a young girl, probably a teenage girl, um, goes to the gate. They're afraid, honestly. They don't know who's going to be arrested next, who's going to be executed next. And so she doesn't open the outer gate. Actually, pretty wise home defense plan right there. She doesn't open it, but she recognizes Peter's voice, and she's overwhelmed with joy, so she doesn't open it even though she recognizes Peter's voice. And she runs back in to tell the praying church the prayers have been answered. And their response, you're out of your mind. How many times have those of us who have been in church life for a long time experienced that? But the fact that the church is human and the fact that the church is imperfect and the fact that the church oftentimes makes mistakes doesn't mean it should be anything other than the first place you go when you need them. I'm not saying you need to share your deepest, darkest secrets with everybody because nobody can guarantee that it's not going to remain secret and it may need to be quiet. But I'm saying with believers is where we need to be. Have you ever stopped and thought, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 10 that talks about the end times and it talks about when things get really difficult And people are in danger if they go to church. And the author of Hebrews says, in those most difficult moments, at the very end of time when everything's deteriorating and falling apart, that's the moment to not neglect being together. Part of the astounding response in this passage of Scripture is the beauty of a church who's praying and the beauty of a church that you want to be with when prayers are taking place because life is hard and life is difficult. A place where miracles happen. I don't know that you'll see an angel. I don't know that an angel will deliver you from your situation at work. I don't know that it'll deliver. I don't know how God wants to answer that prayer. But what I know is he answers every prayer. Even the apostle John told us when we pray, if we pray according to the will of God, if we pray in the way that we best know, God hears that prayer. And I love this phrase out of 1 John chapter 4. If he hears that prayer, he will answer. It's real simple. When things break down, pray. And depend upon 
your church family to pray for you. And when God answers that miracle, then be with the people that were beside you the whole time. Just because things get tough doesn't mean you should avoid this place. I know the temptation. I know you don't do this as long as I've done this, not just the 15 years here, but the entire course of my career. You don't do this as long as I've done it, Pastor Josh, without having some Sundays you wake up and think, why am I going today? What am I going to say? What do I have to say? But God is faithful. We all make mistakes. And we all do things that are wrong. But that's not why we're here. We're, we're not here because we were attaining perfection. We were here because we believe in and serve a perfect God who is always faithful, always loving. And we made the decision to say, yes, Jesus, be a part of our lives.